WTBN Pinellas Park. Online at letstalkfaith.com. A service of the Salem Media Group. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Once we were children of wrath, we were children of, of Satan. Jesus said, your father is the devil, and we became children of God. Therefore... What's to say that we can stop being children of God and go back to being children of Satan? But can we go back to being children of Satan once we become children of God? Well, it stands to reason that if we cannot make ourselves into new creatures, we also cannot make ourselves back into the old creature, which the Bible says is now dead. But we have more than reason to lean on. We have God's Word. Today on Verse by Verse, we'll consider whether or not children of God are forever children of God. We're pleased to have you along today as Pastor Steve Kreloff continues this series on eternal security called Safety for the Sheep. Pastor Steve has been serving since 1981 at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Pastor Steve normally preaches one verse at a time right through Scripture, but we're bouncing around more than usual in this series. That's because many years ago, as Pastor Steve was preaching in the Gospel of John, he came to a wonderful promise from Jesus that assured us of our security in Him. Pastor Steve felt led at the time to deal more completely with the topic, and that led to this rich series of messages about the security of the believer. The book of Romans is a tremendous book. In Romans chapter 8, Paul said, And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Did you catch the verb tense there in that last statement? The security of the believer is so secure that Paul describes our glorification as a done deal, even though it's still in the future. In fact, we'll be looking at that passage more in our next class, but now open your Bible, if you can, to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, and look at another strong word Paul used. He said, we shall be saved from God's wrath. Not we might, not we hope to be, we shall. Here's Pastor Steve with today's lesson. And I want you to turn to something that I, I just didn't get to, but Romans chapter 5. This is a tremendous verse. And when I saw this, I, I just thought, wow, what, what a thrill. And I just wanted to share it with you. Romans chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Probably Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 or 1 through 11, is perhaps the uh, one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible dealing with the security of the believer. But in, I, I just want to point out to you verse... Well, let's look at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Usually we, we take it only to that point. Usually that's, that's all we say. But verse 9 and 10 is precious. Much more than having now been justified or declared righteous by his blood, it means by faith in his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Okay, in other words, we never have to fear condemnation. We're justified, those of us who are justified, which is every believer, never has to fear future wrath. It's already been taken care of. But, but look at verse 11, or verse 10, rather. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In other words, let me tell you what he's saying. If the Lord reconciled us when we were enemies, don't you think he'll keep us now that we're friends? Think about that. If he reconciled us when we were enemies, 
Why do you think he's going to let you go now that you're his friend? You could say this. In one sense, the hard part was getting us saved. The easy part is keeping us. And, but someone says, but, but if I sin, if I sin, he'll, he'll let me go. He won't be reconciled. Sin isn't the issue here. Before, before you were uh, reconciled, you were dead in sins and trespasses. If that was the issue, God would have never reconciled you. He keeps us, he says, by his life. What does he mean? By his uh, advocacy and his intercession. That's what it means. Not that he's just risen again, but he's risen to intercede for us. He functions now as our great high priest. So we said God deals with the believer's sin two ways. Number one, he's our advocate, our defense lawyer. And number two is that God deals with us by correcting us. He chastises us. He disciplines us. Our sins are different than, than the unbelievers. They'll be judged for their sins at the great white throne judgment. We are, are judged in, in the sense of correction now. When I saw this truth about, about how God deals with believer, believer sins, I really, just last week, I had to put down my Bible and just praise the Lord. You see, that's the kind of response that these truths ought to build into you. Even when I sin, and God certainly is not encouraging us to sin, God has it all planned out to take care of it. Now let's look at some more biblical truths which defend the doctrine of eternal security. I think you're going to be thrilled with these truths. In John chapter 10, we saw the role of the Son and the role of the Father. We're in the Son's hand and we're in the Father's hand. You don't need to turn to John 10. I'm just reminding you. We saw the work of the Son. The Son holds us. The sheep are in His hand. And, and not only that, the sheep are in the Father's hand, but there's another person of the Trinity that we have to ask ourselves, what place does He have in all this? And that's the Holy Spirit of God. What does the Holy Spirit have to do with our eternal security? He has a lot to do with it. For one thing, the Holy Spirit is responsible for imparting divine life to us. This is called the new birth. That's what the new birth is, or, or born again, or born from above. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 6, he says, That which is born of the flesh is what? Flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is what? Spirit. It's a comparison between natural birth in the sense of having human parents and spiritual birth. He's saying natural birth brings forth natural life and spiritual birth brings forth spiritual life. I mean, I think that's, that's pretty simple. When you were saved, you were born again. We hear that expression a lot. Most people don't know what it means. They think it has to do with an athlete whose arm has come around and now he can pitch again. But it doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with, with the Spirit of God imparting to us divine spiritual life. And this divine life will not die. First Peter says that. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, You were born again. Let me read it to you. You've been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. That divine life will not perish. It's there for good. Now, just following through on this analogy, comparison, when your mother gave birth to you, she gave birth to a human being. I know sometimes that's questioned in all of us, you know, what kind of person are you? People say, what are you? But, but uh, she gave birth to a human being and, uh, and with a human nature. You're a human being with a human nature. If you weren't, you, you would not be a human being. I, I don't think I need to elaborate that. Uh, there's, a, there's the truth that says we reproduce after our own kind. God does too. When you were born spiritually, you received divine life. 
you received also divine nature. We become partakers of the divine nature, Peter says. And just as you cannot stop being a human being with a human nature, so you cannot stop being a spiritual being with a divine nature. Now that's the analogy. That's the analogy. Just as it was impossible for Nicodemus to, to climb back into his mother's womb a second time, be born all over again, so it is impossible for you to go back into the womb of the Holy Spirit, so to speak, and be born all over again. Now, some people don't agree with that. They say you have to be born again and again. I would challenge anyone to find one place in Scripture where you have anybody who's been born again and again and again and again. Why isn't it there? Why isn't it there that you see people, I mean, if I can lose my salvation, then certainly throughout the scriptures, there ought to be an indication of people who lost it and got it again. No, you can only be born one time physically and one time spiritually. Now, some have, have, have objected to this analogy by pointing out, and they say this as well. If you're going to hold to this, then, then let me challenge you. They say, a human child can be disowned by his father legally. So why can't God do the same thing? It's true that a human father can disown his son legally, but he can never change the fact that that's still his natural son, can he? Now, the son may not enjoy the blessings of sonship, but he's still his natural son. He never stops being a human being, regardless of what the father says, regardless of, of the legality of it. He can't stop being a human being with a human nature which his father and mother had a great part in giving to him. Still others object to this analogy by pointing out that a human can take his own life, which is true. They say uh, their, their reasoning is this. Therefore, a child of God can commit spiritual suicide. He can walk away from God. He can be an unbeliever. He can lose his salvation. But that's that's not really the case. That analogy does not follow through. When a human being commits suicide, does he stop being a human being? I mean, does he turn into a dog or something? No. He simply stops being a human being on earth. That's all. He's still a human being. He never ceases from being human. The law of nature states, once a man, always a man. You take your own life, you, stop, you don't stop being a man. You're just being a man in a different way, but you're, you're still a man or a woman. You still are a human being. Now someone says, and I, I'm just giving you what, how people would challenge us on this analogy. They'd say, now, wait a minute. It is possible, some say, to change families. You can change families and, and natures. And they say, once we were children of wrath, we were children of, of Satan. Jesus said, your father is the devil. And we became children of God. Therefore, What's to say that we can't stop being children of God and go back to being children of Satan? It's a good point, except there are two responses to that. Number one, that is not the analogy of John chapter 3. And God makes no analogy like that. Yes, he says you are born children of, of wrath, but that is not the analogy of John chapter 3. The analogy of John 3 is simply that which is born of the flesh is flesh. What you were, were you, uh, you were born physically and you're like this forever. You're born again spiritually, you're like this forever. Secondly, John chapter 1 will help us on this. John chapter 1 says this, verse 12 and 13. Speaking, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's all of God. And let me, let me say this, that when you were born physically, you had absolutely nothing to do with it. You had nothing to do with conception. You really had nothing to do with birth. A few weeks ago, I was talking to my mom and dad in Miami, and I said, um, I said, how many children did you want? My mom said, one. I'm the second. Okay? And uh, she said, but your father wanted two. So I turned to my dad and I said, thanks. <laughs> See, I had nothing to do with it. And you really had nothing to do with it. When you're born physically, you have nothing to do with that. Same thing is true spiritually. You really have nothing to do with it. Someone says, well, wait a minute, I, I have to believe. Yes, in a sense that's true, but God overrules. And let me read a quote from Dr. John Walvoord in his book, The Holy Spirit. Dr. Walvoord is the president of Dallas Seminary. He says this, the nature of the work of regeneration, that's simply another way of saying born again, forbids any possible human assistance. As a child in natural birth is conceived and born without any volition on his part, so the child of God receives the new birth apart from any volition on, on his part. In the new birth, of course, the human will is not opposed to regeneration and wills by divine grace to believe, but this act in itself does not produce new birth. As in the resurrection of the human body from physical death, the body in no way assists the work of, of resurrection. So in the work of regeneration, the human will is entirely passive. It is not that the human will is ruled aside. Understand what he's saying. No nor does it uh, waive the human responsibility to believe. It is rather that regeneration is wholly a work of God in a believing heart. It is the work of God in, in bringing you spiritual birth, just as it is the work of your parents in bringing you physical birth. So the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us new life to begin with. And that new life never leaves us once born, you continue like that. But not only is the Holy Spirit responsible for imparting new life, he also lives within each of us. I want you to turn to John chapter 14. John 14. This is a verse that we'll be dealing with, a passage when we come to that in our study. But John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. Jesus said, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Jesus said he abides with us forever. He lives within each believer, each believer, whether we live godly lives or not. In fact, Paul wrote to the Corinthians who lived ungodly lives. He said, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6 19, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter as far as how godly you are. Now the question is, will the Spirit of God ever depart from a believer? That's really the issue, because if he departs, then we aren't Christians, because Romans 8, 9 says, if you have not the Spirit of Christ, you're none of his. So if you have the Spirit of Christ, you belong to him. Now the question is, will he ever depart? Not now he won't. He did in Old Testament times. That's why some people get confused because they read the Old Testament and they see such uh, statements as uh, Judges 16.20 concerning Samson, the Lord had departed from him. They read in 1 Samuel 6.14, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And the famous one is Psalm 51.11 where David prayed, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And they say, aha, it is possible to lose the Spirit of God. 
When Jesus uttered his words in John 14, he was saying, look, it's been like this up to this point. The Holy Spirit has functioned differently. He came upon people, and when you sinned, he left people. Didn't mean they lost their salvation. Didn't mean they lost their salvation. It just meant the Spirit of God functioned in their life. They lost the power in their lives. They lost the blessings in their life. And what Jesus is saying is there, now there is a new era. It is the New Testament era. There, it is the church era. And from this point, the Spirit of God will forever abide with you. He'll never depart, and he will not only be with you, he will be in you. We are the only people who the Spirit of God dwells in permanently. Not even during the tribulation will those who come to believe have the Spirit of God indwelling them permanently. We are unique. We are a unique age and a unique people. Speaking of a new era. Now, since the Spirit lives in every Christian, and he doesn't leave him like he did in the Old Testament, then how could a saved person ever be lost? In other words, since he, he only lives in Christians, and he'll never leave a Christian, then once you're a Christian, you're always a Christian. Because if he ever departed, then you wouldn't be a believer. And he never departs from believers. Never departs. So once you're a believer, you are, or you are always a believer. Do you see that? You have to kind of use some, some reasoning. He only lives in Christians. And the ones he lives in, he says he'll never leave. So once he comes to live in you, he'll never leave you because you are always a believer. So the Spirit of God indwells us. Not only that, he not only regenerates us, he not only indwells us, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Ephesians chapter 1 Verse 13 says this, In him you also, and this is how you ought to translate it, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The moment you believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit who God had promised. Now what does it mean to be sealed? We don't hear that expression too much. It, it has nothing to do with an animal that makes funny noises. A seal in this setting is something else. A seal in ancient times was used to describe security and ownership. That's what a seal was. For instance, Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 through 8, we read about the 144,000 Jews during the tribulation. Verse 3 says this, one angel speaking to another angel, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their forehead. In other words, their seal was to protect them. The seal was to bring protection. Don't do anything that's going to hurt them until they're sealed because then they're going to be protected. Daniel chapter 6, verse 17, Daniel is thrown into, a, into the lion's den and the king takes his, his signet ring with the nobles of his court and they put that upon the, the stone that covered the mouth of the lion's den. They sealed it. And verse 17, part of it says this, they sealed it so that nothing might be changed in regard to Daniel. When that seal was there, it couldn't be altered, couldn't be changed. Revelation chapter 20, Revelation chapter 20, verse, verse uh, 2 and 3 speaks of Satan. It says, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over. Why? So that it, he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were complete. After our things, he must be released for a short time. Why was he sealed? The sealing was security. It was safekeeping. 
Satan's not going to go anywhere for a thousand years. Now, in each of these passages, the seal is used to describe an unalterable position of those who were sealed. Protection for the 144,000, no change in the king's commands, and safekeeping for Satan. Now, Satan doesn't want to be kept safe, but he is. He's going to be there and he can't get out. And this is exactly what God means when he says we're sealed. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Our position cannot be changed. We are safe. We are protected. It cannot be altered. The king's commands cannot be changed. We are sealed. But someone says, but isn't that only until we sin? No. Ephesians 4.30 says this, right in the context of sinning. It says this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Right in the context. You are sealed until you stand in the presence of God and sin has no effect on you. That is the day of redemption. Until you have a glorified body. You are sealed until you make it completely home. You're sealed. Dr. Ryrie gives this illustration concerning that. He said, one of the best earthly illustrations of sealing is a piece of registered mail. When something is registered at the post office, it is sealed until delivered. Only two persons can open registered mail, the sender, if it's delivered back to him, and the recipient. In the case of the believer, God is the one who sends him on his way to heaven, and God in heaven is the recipient on his arrival. Therefore, only God can break the seal of our redemption, and he's promised not to do so. And the guarantee of that promise is the presence of the Holy Spirit, who is the one in whom we've been sealed by God. Can't be broken. Can't be broken. Nobody is stronger than the Father. No one's greater, Jesus said, than my Father. And your Father said he's not going to break the seal. Not only does he regenerate us, not only does he indwell us, not only does he seal us, but... Ephesians 1.14 says he is the earnest of our inheritance. Let's look at that. Who is given, speaking of the Holy Spirit, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with the view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. What is this, the earnest of our inheritance or the pledge? You know what it means? It means a down payment. It means a down payment. God has given every Christian the Holy Spirit as a down payment that there's more to come. He's given the Holy Spirit as proof that full payment is on its way. In other words, the Holy Spirit is given so that we'll know that our, the inheritance that God has awaiting us in heaven will one day be our actual possession. That's what he means. What a precious promise. This word was used in New Testament times as an engagement ring. Now, some people brought up, oh, but people can break engagements and take back their rings. Yes, people can, but God doesn't. God doesn't break any agreement. God doesn't break his promise. And God says, I give you this as a down payment so that you'll know that someday you'll have the actual inheritance fully in your possession. That's what he means. What a precious promise. Not only is it a precious promise, it's a sure promise. Can you imagine God not honoring his down payment or his promise? I can't. If he did that, he wouldn't be God. Let's quickly review what the Holy Spirit has to do with our eternal security. He gives us divine and therefore eternal life. He indwells us, and Jesus said that that would be a permanent indwelling. The Holy Spirit also seals us until the day of redemption with an unbreakable seal, and He serves as a down payment, assuring us of the inheritance that is yet to come. I'm glad you could join us today for Verse by Verse and another lesson from God's Word. Our Bible teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. 
Lakeside is located at 1893 Sunset Point Road. Stop by someday if you're in town. You can find a map to Lakeside, a phone number, email address, and lots of other information at lakesidechapel.com. One of the ministries mentioned on that website is this one. As you might guess, radio production doesn't just happen. Verse by verse can only happen with the help of our listeners. Perhaps the Lord has been blessing you through these radio Bible classes. If so, would you pray about joining the support team? We have information about that at our website, versebyverseradio.org. We also have a long list of previous broadcasts, including today's, that you can listen to online or download for later. That's www.versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. As I thought about today's class, I did a little Googling, and I came up with a website arguing against eternal security. The author gave a long list of passages and claimed that they told us we can lose our salvation. But then as I looked at those verses, I saw that each one could just as easily be understood to mean exactly the opposite. And taken in the light of other scripture that the author ignored, they do mean that our salvation 